Welcome to Only Trying to Help, the podcast where we try to help you be helpful to other people. My name is Kate Watson, and I am joined today by my friend, Hillary Bolter. Hillary, would you like to introduce yourself? All right. Hillary Bolter here. I am a therapist and a licensed clinical addiction specialist, and I also train in this conversation style called motivational interviewing, so helping healthcare professionals communicate effectively with their clients. And um, I love all of those roles. I also love my golden retriever, retriever Maggie. Um, And I live in the mountains of Western North Carolina, Asheville or Ash Vegas, as it's lovingly called. Um, Been here about 20 years. So I have been to Asheville and I never knew that people called it Ash Vegas. And that is fabulous. It's a fun <laughs> town. It's got everything you want in a in a small town. That's great. Um, well, I officially call it Ash Vegas. So thank you for that. Um, and thanks for introducing yourself. You know, given the way that you introduced yourself, I think it might make sense to our listeners that we might chat a little bit about the ways that people use and sometimes misuse drugs and alcohol. Um, You made a reference to that in how you introduced what you do for a living. Mm -hmm. Um, And I just want to thank you for your willingness to talk about that for a couple of reasons. One is um, so many people are struggling with this when it comes to their loved ones, where they just so badly want to be helpful and often feel completely lost about where to even begin And I find a lot of folks are looking for like a quick tip, like, you know, just give me the the simple answer of how, how do I be a great parent to a kid who's drinking or using, uh, using drugs? How am I a great spouse to this person? I want to be there for people. The other reason I want to thank you though, for talking about this is I understand you have beyond your professional life, you have kind of a personal connection to this. Do you want to say anything about that? Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. I, when I first became a therapist, I remember saying, I want to do anything but work with people who are, you know, working in addiction or substance misuse. And um, meanwhile, what was happening at home was my partner's substance misuse was really spiraling. Um, this is kind of one of those cl- sadly classic stories uh, from the kind of late 2000, close to 2010, when um, prescribers were prescribing a lot of opiates, a lot, a lot of opiates. And my husband was having um, a lot of issues with his back um, and uh, was given just loads and loads and loads of those. And um, we know at this point what happens when people are given a lot of opiates, um, things can very easily get out of control. And they were. Um, and um, we were going through a lot at home and I, I kind of was learning simultaneously as a new therapist um, and substance abuse counselor um, and on the home front, um, the things that work and don't work in working with people and loving people and caring for people who are misusing substances. Well, first, thank you for sharing that. I know that that is personal and you're putting it out on the airwaves. And I think 
we only benefit when people are willing to talk about these things. And what I'll bet is helpful about even what you've said so far is that, you know, I hear from a lot of people who say, well, I feel like a bad mom because I can't be there for my kid who's going through this, or I feel like a bad spouse or a bad friend. I feel like I'm failing. I feel like I'm bad at this. I should be better at this. And there's like this shame around not being able to save people from their substance use. And I I think it's got to be helpful for people to hear that even a therapist who was studying this stuff was dealing with it at home. And like, given that you had legit credentials, you had expertise. And, and if you're feeling at times, like, I don't even know what to do right now. Imagine how just an average person must feel. Oh, right. I know. And it's crazy making to like, kind of cognitively know, um, and to not whatever tools, whatever efforts, whatever interventions that I had, um, weren't, they weren't the solution. Um, yeah. And at that time I had to end up really having a lot of boundaries and moving out and getting some space. And those are really hard, uh, decisions, um, to make when you really care about someone and love someone. Um, and yeah, we, we worked through things and he stopped, you know, he got the help that he needed, but we both had to do our own work and our own journey to, to get there. Really well said. We both had to do our own work, um, which just reminds me that like the only person you really have any control over is yourself. And so in any relationship where there's some kind of issue, some kind of problem, probably all you can do is work on yourself and then watch that benefit the other person. You know, it benefits right. them when you work on yourself. Right. We're a part of a system. We're a part of a family system, whether we're loving someone or a child or a family member, any family member. Um, and so, yeah, when one part of the system shifts, it impacts the other parts of the system. Sometimes I use the metaphor um, with clients. Like uh, if you think about those old school watches that had all the gears in them turning, um, if one gear wasn't turning, it impacted the turning of all the rest of the wheels. And so what we can do is focus on ourself and, and focus on our turning and see how that will have, we don't know, we can't control it. Um, we don't, uh, in fact, uh, I went to the Al-Anon program for a number of years to get the support I needed. And the big focus of the Al-Anon program is um, keep the focus on yourself. Um, what can you do, you know, oxygen mask over self first and take care of you. And those are really counterintuitive when someone you love is spinning out, you know, our intuition is what else can I do for them? How can I control this? How can I stop this? What did I do to cause this? How can I change this? All the focus is on the other person. And our brains are telling us like, alarm, 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 crazy things are happening. Do something to stop this uh, terrible situation. And it's, so it's counterintuitive to shift the focus back on ourselves and look at how do I take care of me? How do I support myself? How do I, um, yeah, get the community and the supports that I need to get through this in a, in a compassionate way, compassion toward myself, compassion toward my loved one that's using. And Al-Anon's a tool. There's lots of other tools. I am definitely not a one size fits all for any kind of uh, recovery or therapy services. Um, it was really helpful to me for a while. And um, 
and then I, I felt like I, it wasn't, and I may end up back there again someday, who knows? But um, you know, I think that we need to figure out for ourselves what the tools are to, to pick up, to implement. Yes. Okay. So a lot in there and really well said, I think um, sometimes in addition to all the concern we have for a loved one and, 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 and having, you know, worry for them and wanting what's best for them mixed in there is like this resentment of like, well, I'm not the one with the problem. So why should I be the one to work on myself? You are the problem. You are the one who has the issue and I'm the healthy one. I'm the normal one. Why would I get help? Why would I take a look in the mirror? And I, I hear that sometimes, like as if there are two people and only one is the issue. Uh, and so the other person must just sort of wait for the problem person to change. Uh, and, and that resentment and, and anger kind of builds up. And I, I guess what I think we're both saying, but you tell me if I'm right, Hillary, is that taking time to work on yourself isn't like a punishment because you've done something wrong. It is, it is a gift. It is a joy. It is an opportunity to just relieve yourself of the pressure of having to work on somebody else and take the, the lovely moment to look inward and enjoy some time to look at yourself, not because you have done anything wrong or, or that anybody's a quote unquote problem, but because this, these are the only tools you have and you might as well use your tools. Exactly. Well said. Yeah. And it's empowering when we do that because we, we are, instead of saying you're the problem, if you would get better, I would be okay if you would do this, then things would be better. That's very disempowering. We're waiting for someone else to do something um, that they may or may not do. Um, and that may or may not be the solution. We don't necessarily know. So to, to take back our power by saying, what can I do about this? I can, I can go out with some friends instead of wondering if this person is going to drink too much and not keep our plans or whatever, I can make these alternative plans that are going to make me feel joyful and, um, yeah, and really look at what, what can support me in getting through this. Exactly. Now, I also noticed you had written this great blog post that I saw, um, and I believe it was it seven tips you had or, or mm -hmm. somewhere around there. Yes. Mm -hmm. Seven tips for loving someone struggling with substance misuse. <laughs> there we go. That was the title I was searching for. Seven tips for loving someone who is struggling with substance misuse. And um, and we may not have time to cover seven of them today, but I, I part of the reason I wanted to speak to you was to see if we could just highlight a few of them. Do you mm -hmm. want to pick one to start us off? Sure. I think we just, we talked about one just now, this like taking care of you, shifting the focus from the person who is struggling and all of their, the behaviors that are alarming or, or difficult for you and, and shift that focus back to you. So that is about, you know, I think the metaphor, put the oxygen mask over yourself first. It's used a lot in this field. Um, and it is a helpful metaphor to think about what can I do to support me and my breathing and how do I get my logic brain on board? Because loving someone who's misusing substances, you know, we get drawn into arguing and the logic that we see, we're like, but, you know, we want to point out what's going on and, um, and our logic brain gets 
out of whack there too. And so whatever it takes to take care of us and keep our logic brain on board, that's that like really taking care of you tip. Great. So if we ever already covered one, then we are mm-hmm. super efficient. <laughs> yes. yes. All right. Cool. So what would be another one? Um, don't argue. That's my, mm-hmm. that's my next tip. Um, along that lines of the logic brain, you know, we, we may have a take of what's going on. And um, I know this came up a lot in being married and living with someone who is misusing substances as I would see details unfolding or events unfolding. And I would want to point them out <laughs> and, and try to use the evidence that I saw as evidence to try to get them to change. Like, don't you see this just happened? Can't you see that this is a problem? And um, that arguing just created this, this nasty tug of war because we each had such different realities that we were experiencing. You know, someone who is in substance misuse, um, in a lot of struggle is experiencing things very differently than we are. Um, and so getting into that, who, what, who's right and what version of reality is the correct one is not helpful for anyone. It's fatiguing <laughs> for us and it's crazy making. So my tip is don't argue. Um, our logic brain may not fully be on board. Theirs is not on board. Um, don't get sucked in. So one thing that we can do besides that tip too, <laughs> take care of yourself is to, if we can listen, to just reflect, just reflect what it is that they're saying. We're not agreeing. We're not condoning. We're just saying, yeah, this was really hard for you that you just got that um, DUI. You really don't see how that was possibly your fault. That's really hard. Yeah. And you know what? Genuinely, right? Like, like genuinely, I can understand that it must be hard to get a DUI without seeing how it's your fault. And if I use my imagination, I can imagine that if if a person gets a DUI and they don't see that it's their fault, that must be awful. Mm-hmm. That that must be a terrible thing to go through. And, and I I sometimes worry that I sound sarcastic, but I really don't mean that sarcastic. Right. No, sarcasm is not helpful. <laughs> no. And, and if that sounded sarcastic, then I did it wrong because it was not meant to sound sarcastic. But, but sincerely, it must be a terrible experience to get that DUI when you don't see that you've done anything wrong. Right. That would be awful. That would be awful. Right. Right. Yeah, we can, we don't need to condone or agree with that statement, but we could connect empathetically with the feeling of going through something that you don't think you should be going through and how hard that is. Right. Yeah. And, you know, you said, um, do not argue. And, and one of my worries is that people might hear something you didn't say. They might hear, don't get mad. Well, that's not what you have said. Mm -mm. People get mad. You can be mad without arguing. Um, do you want to add anything to that as I've said it or elaborate? I think that's, yeah, that's helpful to um, dig into a little bit more. Um, when I say don't argue, it's not, it's arguing about like the versions of what's happening. It's the, it's those logistics. Um, another of my tips feeds off of that. Like we keep, make boundaries and keep them like take care of yourself, make requests. 
instead of some of our um, in things, I will speak for myself. Sometimes my instincts brought me into some passive aggressive behaviors, <laughs> you know, like pouting or pointing out things that they do wrong, try to get them to do it right. Um, and to flip that around to say, like, what is my, what do I actually need? What's my request here? My request is fill in the blank. And then I need to create a boundary for myself around. And if they don't do that, how am I going to take care of myself? Where is my absolute boundary here? What am I willing to tolerate and not tolerate? Um, yeah, all of this stuff kind of overlaps and bleeds into each other and has all of these nuances. Um, but I think it's important for us to look at our instinct. We have an instinct to say or do something. Our instincts come from a really good place. They come from us trying to want to help, to support, to change, to get out of this really hard situation. They're not always effective. So we need to look a little bit deeper about where does this instinct potentially take us and how can I look at some tools to shift those instincts in more effective ways? Not getting I'm pulled into arguments is one of them. Yeah, I am. Uh, I'm smiling over here because what you've just described is probably relevant for all eight seasons, every episode we've talked about, because the, the whole show, every single episode is about understanding those well-meaning things that we may do to try and be helpful that just for whatever reason, don't land well, don't go well, don't serve us well. And, and you've put some new language to that, which made me smile, which is it, it, it might be that your instincts are telling you to do something and then it leaves us very confused when our instincts turned out to be unhelpful or misguiding the situation. Um, and I think that you've captured that in a in a way that even though that has been something we've talked about for 80 episodes, <laughs> I still I still think you have captured it in a way that somebody might hear it a little differently. Um, and so thanks for that. Sure. Yeah. And I actually I'm watching this unfolding a little bit. Um my my poor dad has Parkinson's and um, he's struggling some with some early dementia pieces to it. And I'm my mom is the caretaker. So I watched this unfolding where her instincts, this is an example of arguing that's not helpful. Um, if he's confused about what day it is and he's, uh, this happened where he was arguing, no, it's, it's 10 o'clock at night, but it was 10 o'clock in the morning. And he was really arguing like, no, it's not. And she's like, it is 10 in the morning. And she's, you know, pulling all the evidence out. Like, look, it's light outside. The clock says AM, not PM. You know, she's arguing and he, his response is to argue more um, and to really dig into that. Like, no, it's not. I, I've been up all day, you know, and he's experiencing his version of that reality and she is hers. So it's a sad example, um, but it's a clear example of how it's just not helpful. What might be helpful is to say, like, it feels like nighttime to you and then move on <laughs> to the next, to the next yeah. thing. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and to say it feels like nighttime for you isn't a lie. Um, you're not agreeing with a lie. You're not, you're not uh, promoting a lie. You are understanding through someone else's eyes mm -hmm. what they are experiencing. Yeah. 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 It's so hard to do because again, our logic brain pulls in <laughs> like, I have all this evidence I could argue with you about, but is it helpful? Like to what purpose? So, 
Yeah. I often say to my partner, um, so I say to him, you seem to really need things to make sense. Right. And, and it's, it's my way of being like, sometimes things just don't make sense. And, and at some point you'll have to find a way to survive in a world that doesn't always make sense. Um, but he gets really fixated. If something doesn't make sense, he needs to make it make sense. And I'm usually there going like, let it go. It just doesn't. And, and I say that in this context, because folks, you may love someone who's living in a world that doesn't make any sense to you. And you can try and make it make sense. And you can exhaust yourself trying to make it make sense. And at some point, you might need to just sort of, you know, wash your hands of this and say, I guess it just doesn't make sense. Mm-hmm. Fine. Yeah. But, Fine. I can accept that. You know, that's the way the world is sometimes. Uh, But the Mm -hmm. effort that it takes to try and make things make sense can really drain us. It can really drain us. Yeah, there's a phrase I remember from the the Al-Anon program, you might be right. Um, that can be kind of like a broken record response that, we, you know, you might be right. Um, it, that's a dangerous one, I think, because it can sound sarcastic um, easily, but um, it's it's one way we could end an argument, kind of step away. Um, I think of uh, that metaphor of like tug of war sometimes when we're tugging of war with someone, you know, what naturally happens is you pull harder, you dig in more, you like fortify your stance more and more. Um, And so how can we drop the rope? How can we set it down? Like, you might be right. This is really hard. It feels like nighttime to you. It's a, it's an awful experience to be suffering from the consequences of a DUI when it just isn't making sense to you right now. You know, like, how can we gently like set that rope down and step out of those uh, situations with our loved ones? Yeah. Yeah, I think like the imagery of that will be really helpful. Um, and folks, I mean, at times you might even use that imagery in the moment talking to your loved one. Like it feels like we are in a tug of war right now. I don't really like that feeling. So I think that I would like to just stop tugging on this rope. Um, and that's sort of my way of saying I care more about you than I care about winning this tug of war. Um yeah, that was a, what is that phrase? I think uh, you can be right or you can be happy. Have you heard mm-hmm. that one, Kate? Sure, sure. Um, there are many varieties of this. You can be right or you can be happy is a great one. Um, you can you can love your argument or you can love the person. Um, you know, if you're, if you're fighting a, an argument and it's making your relationship suffer, you are putting more value in that argument than you are in your relationship. Mm. I think think maybe, you know, value your relationship at least as much as you value this argument. (laughs) Mm -hmm. It's so hard. And this is where I feel that tug of empathy and experience for like, but, you know, like my brain wants to go, but, but this person is doing this thing, right? And we got to keep coming back to that, like grounding ourselves supporting ourselves, looking at how our instincts might be not so helpful or contributing. Um, Yeah. And another tip that I write about is um, adjusting our expectations. Um, 
this was a fun metaphor I heard. Um, we don't don't go to the hardware store for a loaf of bread. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. If we go to the hardware store, if I go to Ace, I was just at Ace yesterday picking up brackets to hang a <laughs> curtain rod, right? If I go to Ace and I'm like, where's the loaf of bread? And I, I'm pissed. I'm storming around there. I'm asking, getting sales clerks involved. Where's your bread? You know, I'm setting myself up for an exhausting, resentment, breeding, angry kind of situation. So when we are loving someone who's struggling with substance misuse, what, what might we be expecting of them that just can't be filled? It can't be met. Mm-hmm. Um, and that brings up what is something that a lot of us really don't want to do, which is grieve, which is feel sad for what is missing or what isn't there, what we wish was there, what we wish could be different. Um, and, and sitting with those feelings, processing those feelings. Yeah. What's coming up for you? This idea of adjusting your expectations of a person to me is a whole episode. Like uh, we should do a whole 30 minutes about, are you expecting something from someone? And that person, first of all, never promised you this thing that you're expecting from them uh, and maybe isn't even capable of this thing that you're Mm -hmm. expecting from them. And maybe that's why we need networks in our lives so that if you have multiple needs and one person cannot meet all of those needs, you have other folks who can help you meet those needs. hundred (laughs) percent. Yeah. hundred percent. And, um, The other thing I wrote down that should be maybe its own episodes, we're just going to have to have you back because we're running out of time here. But the, um, the other one that I think could be its own episode is when helping just doesn't feel fair. And let me explain what I mean. We have spent eight seasons asking the listeners to put yourself in the other person's shoes, have compassion, have empathy, be a good listener, be there for them. And I think a lot of quote unquote helpers feel like, well, why am I always showing up for this person who doesn't have empathy for me, who doesn't seem to have compassion for me, who isn't me? Re- who's not reciprocating these things that I'm doing for them. And it's starting to feel unfair. It's starting to feel like I'm a good, helpful person, but I'm not getting it back from others. And I wonder if that's a whole episode too. What do you think? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. It's so hard. It's crazy making. Um, and, and we can accidentally get into these situations where we are doing that. We're banging our head against the wall. We keep storming into ACE for the loaf of bread and getting upset and, And actually I drove to ACE for the loaf of bread again. Like, let me look at that a little bit and actually be like, oh, it's painful because I really want that loaf of bread. And translating it back out of that metaphor and into a person, you know, when I, my partner was really spiraling with substance misuse, um, my brain said, but he can be different. But I can usually expect these things from him, but usually he doesn't act this way. So I kept wanting it to be different. And I was married to that image of what it was before when the substances weren't as, as wild, as impactful. That, that negates what's happening in the moment. What's happening in the moment is things shifted. Things are different. And kind of banging my head against the wall uh, with those attempts to like 
use logic or persuasion. <laughs> you know, it, it exhausted me. It bred resentment. It was really, really hard. Um, and the, the journey, the deeper work really is harder. Like looking at what is really happening here? What do I need? Oh my gosh, I feel so sad. What has happened to this person that I love? And where is he or where are parts of him, you know? Um, and getting the support that I needed to, to mourn and grieve and learn how to set boundaries and take care of myself in that process. Well, I can't thank you enough for this because what we did here was we got, you know, a, a, an opening of a conversation that I think must continue. And so, and it will continue in a few ways. So one thing is I would be happy to share with the only trying to help audience that blog that you wrote that, that offers even more tips. Um, and so we'll make sure we get that posted for everyone to access but then again, you've also sparked all these new ideas. And so maybe we'll have to have you back on and we can dig into some of these a little bit more deeply. What do you think about that? Sure thing. It's, it's great talking to you. And it's great what, what you're doing. I've, for, for years, I've, I've thought, like, how can we kind of bring some of what we know as therapists, as trainers um, into the your regular conversations with friends and family members? And that's what you're doing with your book, your podcast. It's fantastic. <laughs> 